Welcome to episode seven of Ask Paul Kirtley. In this episode, we're gonna talk about some stuff and I don't know what it is yet because I've got a bunch of questions on my phone. I've just downloaded them from my machine at home. People have been leaving me speak pipe questions and I'm just gonna answer them off the top of my head. Um, we'll see what happens. So welcome to episode seven and I'm back in Sussex today. I've been visiting a course which has been run here, an elementary wilderness bushcraft course. I've been visiting the guys on that course and helping them with the shelter building in particular. We've got a good time lapse of that as well. That's one of the reasons I wanted to come down, meet the clients, meet the guys on the course and record that session of them building the shelter and that was a lot of fun and i thought i'd take the opportunity to get the camera out and answer some more questions there's been a lot of questions coming in via speak pipe over recent weeks when i've not been in the office i get them on the back of the website but they're difficult for me to access while i'm out in the field while i'm out running courses or leading trips so i've downloaded all those onto my phone now so i can listen to them out here and i've got the camera and so we'll uh, we'll crack through some questions and if i don't get through them all in this episode i will get to the rest of them in episode eight so without further ado here's the first question hi paul it's austin lill here when i came on your three-day frontier course a while back um, a chap said that he'd taken home a roadkill deer and i seem to remember that you said there were several things quite important things that someone needs to consider before doing so um, now, if I've got that right, I thought it might be salient to get that information out there for others. Thanks very much. Thanks for the question, Austin. Always good to hear from you. Yeah, there are some issues with collecting roadkill deer. Um, first is you don't know how long it's been there for, and that's the case with any animal that you're gonna pick up that you find dead. You don't know how long it's been there for. And just as there are issues with leaving meat out at home um, for too long, not refrigerated um, with bacteria uh, building up, there are those issues with, with animals when you don't know how long they've been there, particularly if they've been injured um, and you know the carcass isn't whole if there's damage to it bacteria gets in there's bacteria um, in certain parts of the animal as well that could be ruptured you know stomachs uh, intestines those sorts of things are not sterile and can if that's all been mashed together there's going to be potential issues there before you even start and you don't know how long it's been there there's some particular issues with deer as well any deer that's shot um, that stalks properly and legally and is put into the uh, the food chain that has a, a set of stringent tests which have to be done there are certain aspects of the deer which need to be checked there are certain glands that need to be checked the hooves need to be checked for foot and mouth all of those sorts of things need to be checked so if it's going to be consumed by somebody and goes into the food chain those need to be done first it's tagged before it's sent off to the game dealer that's standard practice none of that's going to happen necessarily if it's if it's pulled off the side of the road um, then there are some specific other specific issues as well one is a deer needs to be bled within 30 minutes of it having been killed um, that clearly happens if it's been shot and um, the stalker will do that straight away if it's been 
injured and it's wandered off um, at the side of the road or if it's been killed outright again you don't know how long it's been there even if it's still warm you, you don't know how it could, it could how long it could have been there for longer than uh, 30 minutes um, so there's that issue um, that the toxins start to build up the meat tends to spoil um, it should really be bled within 30 minutes and most people who are going to find a deer even if it has been there for only 30 minutes they're not going to bleed it on the side of the road so there's that issue as well and then thirdly with that sort of ruminant where um, they've got the stomachs full of uh, vegetative material that starts building up gas very quickly the animal um, starts to bloat and you'll see that um, with animals at the side of the road you, you may have seen them with the legs splayed apart with big fat stomach that's because of the gases building up in the stomach and that can force um, stomach contents into parts of the rest of the animal particularly if that has been uh, ruptured by the injury and that can force bacteria and other substances into the rest of the, the animal which are not necessarily going to be good so there are some issues with collecting meat from the side of the road but I know of plenty of people who've done it without knowing about any of those precautions um, I'm not condoning it but there are some things that you need to be aware of and those those are them Austin so good question thank you next question Hi Paul, um, Stuart here. Um, I was just wondering, um, I've pondered this recently um, whilst out on the trail um, after a short spell of light rain in the summer, that why have we never seen snails as a food option uh, within a bushcraft environment? Because um, obviously there must be thousands out there and they just come out in their droves, especially after a as I said, a spell of rain. Um, in fact, I've seen quite a few parked up on the top of fence posts, uh, which is just a very convenient place to go and pick them from. There is quite a bit on the internet about preparation. Uh, it does seem a little bit fiddly and long-winded, and you do need quite a bit of water. But um, I've never seen these spoken about or read about anywhere um, in any bushcrafts uh, blogs or writings anywhere so um, I just wonder what your views were on that and um, perhaps we ought to get people eating snails Hi. yeah Stuart I think you've answered your own question there the issue is one of preparation it's not one of edibility um, garden snails are edible um, and they they need to be prepared in a certain way you know the French um, heat snails and there are particular types of snails you get served in restaurants but generally with snails if they are edible they need to be prepared they need to be almost cleansed so that they they have the right sort of taste and it does involve um, some water it involves um, some time and it's not just as simple as going and picking them off uh, the underside of a rock or a log or, or finding them and you know shelling them and, and pop, popping them in a, a pan um, unfortunately um, so there's there's no reason why you couldn't be um, if you're in the woods for a, a, for a time there's no reason why you couldn't be harvesting them feeding them the right things 
and then using them for food. I, there's no reason, it's just not something that people seem to do, particularly not in the UK. Um, we tend to be uh, turned off by that by that issue. But no, I, I can't see any reason. I think you partly answered your own question there. You do, you, you do see from time to time, you say they're not mentioned on blogs. Yeah, not in the sort of bushcraft and survival blogs perhaps, but in, if you look at some wild food blogs, um, you will find them and that's perhaps where you've seen some some mention of them being used there um, but yeah if you if you're in the same place for long enough and you can you can uh, prepare the snails in the right way so that they they're tasty then why not um, I can't see any reason why you shouldn't do that next question if I can pick the right one hi Paul my question is, what advice would you give someone who is either instructing bushcraft at a basic level, is possibly new to instructing bushcraft, or is looking to become a bushcraft instructor as a career? Thanks. Well, there's, uh, there's quite a few uh, questions in amongst that, really, and there's a lot of things that I could say. Um, I'll split it into two parts, really. Um, one about new instructors and one about people who want to be um, an instructor. Um, first off, I'll, I'll start with the people who want to be an instructor. That seems to be the logical sort of timeline. Um, people who want to be an instructor need to be um, motivated by the right reasons. And I think a lot of people see bushcraft courses for, for sale and they look at the fact that the course may be say 500 pounds for the week for the course and for some people that's a lot of money um, for a lot of people it's out of reach for other people it's you know in the context of holidays they might take it's not a huge amount of money and for people who want the training and don't have a lot of time um, it's, it's very very well spent you know they get that knowledge and that information and that coaching um, in a short space of time and they get up the curve so you know I'm not going to have a debate about whether or not it's value for money it depends on where you're at both in terms of um, your income why you want the skills and how much um, how much time you have otherwise and of course you can go and learn from books um, so the first thing I would say if you want to be an instructor you don't necessarily have to go and do lots of courses but you have to have the skill set to start off with and you need to get that skill set to start off with and there are multiple different ways of doing that from teaching yourself finding a mentor going to do um, some sort of mentored instructional and um, development course um, coming to work for a bushcraft school like mine and doing uh, an apprenticeship is another way and before i get inundated with um, applications i don't have any opportunities like that at the moment and i'll, I'll come back to that um, in, a, in a little while um, but i think people optically they see 500 pounds for a week or 600 pounds for a week at some of the some of the top schools um, and they say, okay, well, 12 places, that's, you know, 6,000 to 7,200 pounds. I'd love to earn 7,000 pounds a week. Those guys must be raking it in. Frankly, we're not. <laughs> you know, somebody was quite abusive to me a while ago um, about not offering more information for free. And they were, they were up in arms that I was actually charging for some information um, and saying, oh, you must be making loads of money from your courses and you should be giving this away for free. Well, actually, um, it's quite a difficult um, profession to earn a living from because I'm not teaching courses week in, 
week out for starters. So um, that's that's one thing. You know, we're doing we're, we're running courses some weeks, not other weeks, um, and it's within a certain season. Um, it's from maybe Easter through till September or October that we're that we're running courses. Most people don't want to come to the woods in the middle of December to do a course um, because it's cold and wet and windy, and we don't really want to be teaching a course in December because it gets dark at four o'clock. Whereas if we're teaching a course in June or July, we can teach until nine or ten o'clock at night. People get much better value for money. Going back to the value for money um, point, so. Um, people will look at um, what we do and they'll do a quick back of the envelope calculation and think that it's uh, a money spinner. Um, so my first point is don't try and get into this business. Don't try to get into instructing bushcraft if you think you're going to make loads of money out of it. You're not. Um, any outdoor education tends to be low paid and that's because frankly a lot of people don't want to pay a lot for, out for outdoor instruction. Also for the people who work in outdoor instruction it's seasonal and a lot of people do it as a lifestyle choice and therefore there's a lot of price competition because people just want to be able to pay the bills and that tends to keep the prices of courses, day rates of um, freelancers tend to get pushed down for all of those reasons. So life as an outdoor instructor, whether you're a climber or a mountain leader or a mountain bike guide or a canoe instructor or a canoe guide or a bushcraft instructor, you're not going to make yourself particularly rich from doing it. However optically attractive it might look, you know, because I've got to pay I've got to pay assistance. I typically have three three assistants on a course, certainly two. Um, we've got to pay for insurance, we've got to pay for a vehicle, we've got to pay for land, we've got to pay for food, we've got to pay to run a website and an office and all of those sorts of things. So actually it's really, really quite difficult um, to make ends meet, however you do it, whether you're a one-man band or whether, you're, uh, whether you've got a company with people working for you, um, it, it's not a, a, a path to riches. You've got to be in it for the right reasons. And I'm emphasizing this because you really do have to be in it for the right reasons. You have to have a love of the outdoors, you have to have a love of nature, you have to have a love of the skill set and you have to be competent um, in the skill set before you start trying to show anybody else. Um, and you know you have people applying to me who say you know I'd love to come and be an assistant so that I can learn more. I'm sorry you're not going to get a job as an assistant. You know if you want to learn more pay and come and do a course with me or with somebody else. You know, that's how you're going to learn. Or go and find somebody who can show you. You know, it's not just about paying, but I'm not going to employ somebody to learn. You have to have some interest and have some motivation to go and learn the skills yourself first, I think, before you're going to get um, an apprenticeship with somebody. And I think an apprenticeship is still a, a good way to go because you learn not only about the skills, um, you, you, you layer on on top of your skill set, what you, what you already know, you start to layer on higher levels of skills, but also you learn about how to teach it. There's a lot of people with a good level of skills, but they don't know anything about teaching. They've got no experience of teaching. They don't know different strategies for teaching people of different levels um, of either skill or understanding, or people have different learning styles, people have um, difficulty understanding information one way. You've got to um, try and find a way 
of, of, of allowing that information to, to, to get to them in an efficient way. Um, some people don't like to be shown, they prefer to do. There's also, you've got to learn different strategies for teaching and that's, that's something that you get from um, apprenticing or doing a course where you are taught how to teach. You're taught different teaching strategies. Um, you also learn about the, the logistics of running a course. You learn about risk assessments. You learn about uh, looking after customers and, and clients and, and students. So I think if you can find somebody who will, even if it's an unpaid Saturday um, or weekend job where you can go and assist on courses, um, that's a good way. And if you can't do that, if you can get involved in local scout groups, scout um, association are always calling out for leaders, just some way where you can start to get the basic skills across to people, that's a, a start to the path. And, th and that's the way I would look at it. If you don't have money to pay for a training course, or you don't have lots of time to devote to learning because you've got to earn a living and got to put food on the table and pay the bills um, you know do it gradually do use your weekends use your evenings um, that way get involved in the scouts get involved in the local um, nature reserve all these sorts of things can allow you to start to build up the skill set that you need um, if you can get a paid apprenticeship that's great that's probably still only going to be seasonal because as I say that tends to be the work those are the sorts of things to do and then just write off to people ask contact people on social media ask um, but you've got to say what you can offer too. I get a lot of people writing to me saying, I want to come and take from you. Um, and that, that doesn't interest me as an employee, as an apprentice, as an assistant. I need somebody who's going to offer something to me and to um, my clients, um, but either directly or by extension, by supporting me or supporting other people who work. Um, too many people write in and say, you know, I would like to come and work for you so I can learn more. And frankly, that, that isn't an equation that works. Um, in terms of people who are um, instructors and are new instructors, I would say the most important thing is um, don't teach beyond your level of knowledge. Um, don't bullshit people. Um, if you don't know the answer to a question, um, say, I don't know, I will find out for you. Um, and that can be hard to do when you're a new instructor and you're a little bit, maybe not quite as confident in your skills. I'm quite happy to say to people, I don't know. Um, there's loads and loads of things that I don't know. I'm confronted by things that I don't know every single week when I'm working with customers because they ask all sorts of fantastic questions. And so when you're, when you're teaching and people ask you um, things that you don't know, um, and it could be about a bug that they see on a thistle here, you know, for example, um, what's this? I may know what it is, I may not know what it is. I may have to go and ask Sherry, who is one of the assistants who works with me at Frontier Bushcraft. Um, the rest of the time when she's not working with us, most of the time she's working for one of the wildlife trusts and she's fantastic in her knowledge of um, all, the, all the small things that creep around in the hedgerows um, and particularly in, in the bugs and insects um, that you find. Um, and so there is always somebody who's gonna know more about stuff than you in a particular area. Going back to what I said in, in episode six, um, you can't know everything and there will be things that you're strong on and things that you need to improve on. Um, 
and just see it as an opportunity for you to learn something as well. Now, clearly, if you're teaching people the basics, like, you know, if you don't know how to, if you're teaching somebody how to light fire by friction and you can't do it yourself, then that's kind of fraudulent. You kind of need to be able to do that first. But, you know, if somebody says, well, you know, in, in the Amazon, what might be used? I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. I'll go and find out for you. Or what's this bug? Or I read something on Wikipedia about something. What do you think about that? And I'm like, well, I've never heard of that. I'm going to go and look at it. There's loads of peripheral knowledge that people will ask you about all the time that if you just embrace that you can take it on board and you'll learn a lot more as well and um, also people have got different ways of looking at things as well and a, a new perspective can give you a new perspective on what you're teaching as well and that's always interesting so don't be too defensive when you're teaching clearly you've got to know the major building blocks of what you're doing you know if you've adver advertised a course where you're teaching people how to do some basic campfire cookery light fires do a bit of basic tracking um, do some tree and plant identification show them how to do a bit of friction fire lighting water purification you need to know that stuff inside out and if you don't then you need to get up that curve quickly because I don't I think you need to have a higher level of knowledge than the one you're teaching at so I would say even if you're teaching a baseline of knowledge um, David then I would say make sure that you know as much around that as possible because you're going to answer more questions and you're also going to be more confident in your delivery and people will pick up on that if you're really stretching the level of knowledge and level of skill that you've got to teach the basics people will pick up on that and they will not trust you as much as an instructor whereas if you're just very confident you're very easy with those skills they're just second nature to you then they will trust you that much more and you can take them much further with their own skills as well and that's that's an important thing um, but I would say the most important thing is just be honest about what you know be honest with yourself make sure you know what you need to know to teach what you've advertised you're teaching and and try and get an, a level of knowledge that's above that and then just don't BS people um, because people increasingly have got really good BS radars and you need to you need to just be honest um, and you th think about the long haul you're trying to get customers to come back you're trying to get people to come back and do different things with you you want good word of mouth all of that's really really important um, so that would be the main thing and then in, in terms of um, in terms of career development just you know don't be afraid of doing the basics over and over and over and over and over again um, we do, you know, we, we teach a range of different levels on our courses from very basic beginners level stuff up to, you know, we do overseas wilderness expeditions and all the skills that go with that. Um, we do a lot of in-depth uh, training on tracking and tree and plant identification and foraging and living off the land and navigation and all those sorts of things. Don't try and do everything at once. Um, you know, our bread and butter is still teaching the basics and I absolutely have a thrill every time I teach somebody how to do um, bow drill or I show somebody how to make cordage for the first time and they love the simple aesthetic of making cordage from plant fibres or they start to make really good feather sticks or whatever it is. Just take a joy in getting people up the curve with the basics. You know, I love teaching people how to make really good pancakes um, out in the field with completely dried ingredients, you know, but you can turn out really good food in difficult circumstances um, with good fire management, good firewood selection, um, knowledge of cooking um, and cooking times over a fire. That's fairly basic, you know, it's baseline. We all need to eat every day, but if you can turn out a great meal on a fire in difficult circumstances, that's a great thing for any instructor to be able to do. I think anybody who says that they're an outdoors person and they're not very good at cooking outdoors, you've got to, you've got to kind of question that um, because it's a basic thing that we need to be able to do every day. It's a bit like somebody saying, 
I'm not very good at breathing. You know, you kind of need to be able to do it every, every single day. So work on those baseline skills and don't get frustrated with teaching the same stuff over and over again. We all have to do it and just take a joy in it. Um, take a joy in finessing your skill set of the basics. Take a joy in finessing your ability to get those things across to people and finessing your ability to get them up the curve um, more quickly. Um, that's, you know, to me, there's as much in there as there is going to wild places and, and guiding people in, in difficult conditions in far-flung places and learning about, you know, tree and plant identification and their uses um, in, in new places. You know, that, that for me is great, but I love you know, if I can teach somebody how to make a really good feather stick on a weekend course, I'm, I'm really happy too. And, and you've got to take joy in those things. Slightly long-winded answer there, David, I'm thinking on my feet, but there's, there's so much that I could talk about. Um, but just, just enjoy, enjoy the journey as well. Next question, if my phone hasn't died. They're all on here. Right. Da, da, da. Hello Paul, it's uh, Adrian Spring. My question concerns hawthorn. I've used the hawthorn berries to make the fruit leather before, but I was just wondering if there was another way of using them for food. Uh, thank you for all your assistance. Uh, keep up the good work. Love the show. Thank you. Hi Adrian, good to hear from you and another good wild food question from you. Um, if you don't remember Adrian, he asked a question about Alexander's a couple of episodes ago. Um, yeah, I mean, I, personally, I think making the leathers from the hawthorn berries is the best thing that you can do with them. I mean, you can eat them straight off the tree. They've got a large um, pip in the middle, as you know, um, and they don't taste anywhere near as sweet or as um, just as pleasant to eat straight off. They're quite mealy. They're not particularly flavoursome. They're not sweet like some of the other berries. But, you know, you can eat them like that. Um, you can sort of get halfway to making a leather and add that into other things um, with with other fruit to sweeten it up a bit you know if you wanted to make a sort of compote if you like while you're out um, you know I've done courses where um, you know in terms of teaching but also I've done um, and initially I did courses um, but also um, I've done exercises on my own where you're living off the land and frankly you've got to change your expectations you know um, making fruit leathers is great and it allows you to preserve fruit uh, over the winter and carry it with you um, which is uh, and it and it tastes better and I know some people who make fruit leathers in the autumn late summer and into the autumn and then they they give it to their kids to, to put in their pack lunch for school and the kids actually really love it um, so there's lots of reasons to do that um, whether you're looking at it from a sort of historical living off the land perspective, also from a you know modern um, living, giving your kids uh, good, good, healthy, wholesome pack lunches as well. But if we need to eat the berries right now, um, you can eat them straight off the tree. As I say, not so good. I would tend to sort of go down the route towards making them a fruit leather, but then add some water in, get the seeds out in the same way as you would do when you're making a fruit leather, add some water in, add some other fruit, which are going to sweeten them up and give them a bit more flavor, and then just eat it, you know, like you would, a, um, you know, as I say, a compote or a jam, add it in with other things, add it into a, a soup or a stew. It's not going to be a flavor that you're necessarily going to be massively enamored with mixing that up. You know, if you manage to get, um, you know, a rabbit or a squirrel, and then you've got some other, you know, roots perhaps, and you're mixing it in with fruit, but it's all 
energy, it's nutrition, it's, it's those macronutrients that you need, and particularly you're getting some sugars from the, from the hawthorn berries, and you're getting vitamin C. Um, is it gonna be something you choose in a restaurant? No, but frankly, um, it's a good source of energy and vitamin C, um, and why not take, make use of it if you can? But to be honest with you, the best use of it really is the, is the fruit leathers. Hi Paul, um, it's Tom. Thanks for the response in um, your Ask Paul Kirtley section, uh, Article 5, with regard to the Mora. In regards to the Andrew Buchanan question, as a seven police officer of 28 years, you're absolutely on the money with uh, your response. Um, quite, quite rightly so. Uh, perfect response. Oh, thanks Tom. Thanks. I thought I had another question from Tom somewhere here as well. Let's see if I can find it. Hi Paul, it's uh, Tom from Fife. Uh, my three-year-old son's bought me a silver compass with a mirror. I'm just wondering, uh, obviously apart from the fundamental thing of using it as a reflector or as a signalling, how I actually use the mirror itself in with the compass housing. Many thanks and many thanks for all the podcast. Take care. Okay, thanks, Tom. Thanks for the compliment about the Morris um, and the confirmation that what I said was, was on the money. Thanks for that, much appreciated. Um, thanks also for the question. Um, I will do my best to answer that um, regarding the mirror. Um, in this format, clearly uh, the best way for me to show you would be to, to show you in person um, but uh, or, or to make a video and I, I'll put it on my list of videos to make at some point of how to use that uh, mirror for sighting. Um, but the idea really is for it to, um, to improve the accuracy of your bearings, both in terms of uh, sighting, using the, using the compass to sight and take a bearing, but also in terms of taking a bearing um, from your from your map and translating that into looking at something on the landscape um, and making sure you're very accurate and uh, so if you think about the compass it has a lid and it has a mirror on the inside of the lid now if you lift that uh, lid up to about 45 degrees above the face of the compass and you look at it with the mirror facing towards you but also as I say facing at 45 degrees down towards the top you should be able to see um, the, the, the dial of the compass and the needle of the compass in the mirror and that's the first thing and then there's a line down the middle of that and if you line um, the line that is on the compass um, mirror up with the center of the compass dial where the needle spins around then you know you're not holding it at a slant you know you're holding it horizontally now that's one thing now if you hold it up then and you can sight with that compass in two ways one is you can look just across the top of the the bezel and where the needle is and you, there's a little aperture underneath you can look through that and it's like a little gun sight you can sight on something in the distance or on the end of the lid, and it's um, often part of the clip on different compass um, models, the clip for the lid also has a little notch that looks like a gun sight and it has a luminous spot in it as well and there may be a luminous spot um, in the aperture lower down. That helps you use it in low light and again you can use that so you know that you're not 
holding it at a, a funny angle, you're holding it, you've got the line and the mirror lined up with your compass, and then you use the sight to get a more accurate sighting, and that's how you use that mirror. Um, it's to allow you to have more accuracy with your sighting when you're looking um, and using bearings. So have a play with it, that's what it's, it's used for. I also find it useful as a shaving mirror in the mornings, I don't have to take it um, any other sort of mirror, and also in an emergency it's a useful signalling mirror as well. So I'd recommend anybody to use one of those sorts of compasses, they're absolutely excellent, one of the best compasses you can get, and, and not massively expensive for what they are either. So good question Tom. Let me know how you get on with that. Let me know whether that was a good enough explanation for you to be able to do it um, or whether I need to make you a video and everybody else that, that has the same question at some stage. Cheers, Tom. Thanks. Right, let's see what else we've got. I think we've got a question from uh, question 14. Here we go. Hi, Paul. I'd like to know what all-purpose cordage do you use, prefer and recommend? For example, as guidelines like the ones you used in your tarp nuts videos. Thanks. Okay, first thing, as you can see, I don't necessarily know who these questions are from um, unless you say your name <laughs> in, the, in the recording. Um, so if you're watching this and you want to leave me a speak pipe question, please do uh, leave, me, leave me the name as well. Um, Think of it like you're leaving me a voicemail and you need me to call back. I know you type your name in and I know you put your email address in. I don't have that here. I just have the message. Um, so please leave me your name. And I think I actually ask you to do that on the website. But either way, anyway, by the by. Um, answer to the question. General purpose cordage, um, paracord, proper 550 uh, paracord, um, as opposed to the crappy stuff that you get sold as paracord that isn't paracord. And there's a lot of rubbish on the market sold as paracord. I don't know why uh, they get away with it under trading standards or trade descriptions, but they do. Um, I've bought reels of stuff that's supposedly paracord and doesn't even have any inner, inner uh, kernel to it, doesn't have the strands. Um, so I, I don't know, proper 550 uh, paracord, proper military paracord, great to have some in your pocket, have some in your pack. That's general purpose. Um, but for tarp guy lines, I tend to, unless it's a big tarp, so a group tarp, I will put paracord on there um, because it's strong. Um, and um, you can, if, you, if you're worried about people tripping over, you can put multicolored, you know, you can put orange or yellow or whatever. you can get all those colors now as well. Um, I don't like the stuff that has the, uh, the reflective uh, material woven into it. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't slide very nice as a guy line. It's, it has two different kind of levels. It grabs onto itself too much. It's, it's not particularly nice. Um, but colors work fine. I tend to just use green or brown. Um, for big tarps, for smaller tarps, uh, personal tarps, I tend to use a two millimeter thick. I think I've just got a deer going through the back there. I just heard some sticks cracking there. Um, I tend to use a two millimeter thick. Um, yeah, there's definitely something moving through the, the undergrowth back there. Um, I use a two millimeter thick utility cord that you can get from many, many stores, many outdoor stores. Um, that's way strong enough for a small personal tarp. You can hang plenty up on your hand without it overfilling your hand. You can hang a longer length 
on your hand than you can of paracord. So you can have as long a piece as you need um, and often have a little bit extra is good because you can get round logs, you can get round trees, not just round a peg. You can peg it, you can put the tarp up higher and peg it out further if you want to. Maybe you're just stopping for lunch and you want a few of you to sit underneath it. You've got the options then, so I go, but two mil is by, by far strong enough and it doesn't weigh very much either um, it weighs less than the paracord so in terms of keeping your pack weight down again um, so that's what i use 550 paracord for um, bigger tops and for general utility use and two mil for the small tops that was a very long-winded way of giving you that short answer hello paul yes it's adrian again I was just wondering, on the blog there is an article uh, entitled uh, Five Plants Every Survivalist Should Know, and they all seem to be um, mostly edible. I was wondering, what's your top five medicinal plants? Thank you very much. Keep up the good work. That's the old podcast music there. Um, yeah, they're all edible because they're the ones you need to know from a survival perspective. If you're dumped into an environment, you need common, widespread, easy to recognize, and ones that you, you're gonna get a lot of return from, um, they're the ones that are at the top of your list. So then for those of you that don't know that, don't know that article, I'll link to it in the show notes. Um, top five medicinal plants, um, it, to an extent that's slightly academic because um, it's, it's highly unlikely anybody in that sort of situation these days was, would be in a survival situation for long enough where medicinal plants would make a massive difference. Um, but um, for me, I would say, so if, talking about that context, I'm not sure I, I would... It's very difficult to second guess what exactly the problems people would have. Um, so I would, I would say from that perspective, it is difficult to know. But if you look at your, your broader nutrition, um, you're going to need to know some sources of vitamin C. Um, I would say, I know that's still nutrition to an extent, but the thing you're going to suffer from initially, I would say, unless it's a, an injury, um, the thing that you're going to suffer from, um, even if you're eating roots and tubers and whatnot, um, you're going to start to suffer from a lack of vitamin C and scurvy. So I would say tops of your list next in terms of supplements, let's think of it that way, I would say vitamin C um, sources. And clearly you can get that from berries at certain times of the year, but that's only um, some, some times of the year. You need to be looking um, pine, for example, um, Scots pine and, and other pines are a great source of vitamin C and you need to be looking um, for those and they're common and widespread so I would say that's a good source of vitamin C. Get to know plants in different areas that are a, a source of vitamin C. Um, also um, in a survival situation um, or even just a situation where you don't have um, a lot of foodstuffs um, you know, even on an expedition, you might run out of brew kit. Um, drinking tepid water gets quite boring quite quickly. So a knowledge of different teas is useful. Um, and one of the ones that I find most useful personally, whatever I'm doing is, is mint, because if you've got an upset stomach, you've got a sore stomach, mint is very calming. 
um, on, the, on the stomach. So I would say mint is up there for me as a medicinal herb from that perspective, but also generally as a, as a, as a flavoring. And I am thinking right off the top of my head here, Adrian, I didn't listen to these questions before, um, before I came out. I just downloaded them off the, off the, uh, the back of the website onto my phone. Um, that would be one thing that I would look at. And then you're also going to need some things that are going to deal with cuts and um, whether it's from a healing perspective, but also from a, an antiseptic perspective. So um, I would look for plants that have antiseptic qualities and I would look for plants that have healing properties. And there's a few um, that are useful. So self-heal is a good one from um, healing perspective in terms of putting into wounds and packing into wounds. Um, yarrow is another one. Um, I think historically that's a massively important medicinal herb. Uh, Achilles is reported to have um, asked all of his soldiers to have that in their, in their um, medicinal kits and certainly dried yarrow um, put into a wound is it's um, it's not only a healing aid, but it also helps stop the bleeding. It stings like hell, um, but it does work very well. It's not uh, one that there's myth around. It works very, very well. So I would say yarrow and mint are at the top of my list of medicinal herbs. Um, you want to look for um, then herbs that are gonna help with um, ailments such as headaches i would say you know if you think about again being in a situation where um you know you're you're lost you're hungry you're not getting enough food if you drink coffee or tea you're going to be suffering from lack of um caffeine and um dehydrated potentially all of those things are going to contribute to headaches which can be massively de debilitating in terms of making decisions or even just motivating yourself um, and i've done survival uh, exercises where i've ended up with a massively thumping headache and i don't know whether it's down and i, I still don't know to this day whether it was down to lack of caffeine dehydration you know building a shelter all day without sufficient water intake is going to give you um, is going to give you a headache um, it can be hard to get enough water clean water until you've got fire going so if you're making fire by friction that's hard so you, you're quite likely to end up with a headache at some point if you suddenly thrown into a situation where you're living off the land or you've, you've got a lot less um, resources than you need. And so I would say knowing things like, um, it's not a herb as such, but willow bark has got salicylic acid in it, knowing that um, meadowsweet has got uh, aspirin in it, um, salicylic acid again, um, knowing those things um, is, is probably an important step. Um, you know, we're not dealing with major injuries here or long-term ailments, but if we're looking at it from the perspective of suddenly being thrown into a situation, what would I want to know? Um, I would say those things are um, they're at the top of my list. So um, as a generic thing, you want to know useful things for teas and things that are going to calm your stomach. You don't want to be vomiting or having upset stomach. Um, you want things for headaches. Um, you want things for bleeding and to promote wound healing and antiseptics. Th those are the sort of areas I would be looking at. And there are some very uh, common and widespread things to help you with that. Um, pine, mint, yarrow, um, uh, meadowsweet, willow, um, they'd be all high up on my list, self-heal as well, I mentioned. So good question, got me thinking, of, and I literally answered that off the top of my head. Um, 
that may turn to, into an article. And I may adjust, you know, with a bit of thinking, I may adjust my ranking there, but those, are those things are certainly going to be at the top of my list. Thank you. Um, I think that's all the speak pipe questions that I have at the moment. Let me just double check. Because they do reorder themselves as I play. But that was 17. Yeah, that's all of them. So thank you very much for all those questions. I did get through the speak pipe questions in that time. It's ended up being quite long again. Hopefully though that gives you some insight and knowledge that you were looking for and those people that maybe didn't ask the questions. I know I get asked a lot about um, jobs within um, outdoor education and bushcraft. I know I get asked a lot about navigation. I know I get asked a lot about um, plants and herbs and I know I get asked a lot about basic campcraft and kit as well and so hopefully even the cordage questions are useful to a wide range of people and do just be careful um, when you're if you do find a roadkill deer in particular do be careful um, about how you consume it um, so thanks for the questions I will see you on the next episode of Ask Paul Kirtley but before you go please can I ask if you enjoyed this episode if you found it useful or if there's a, you've got a favourite episode from the past that I've done, from the past series in recent weeks, could you share this episode or your favourite episode with your social network, particularly if you're part of a group or a social network of like-minded individuals that are interested in bushcraft or survival or wild food and foraging or camping. Um, the more people that this information gets out to, the more it leverages this whole format. That was the whole point of me doing this in the first place, rather than answering these questions just with an email to one person and that, that answer being closed off to everybody else. The idea is to get these out to, uh, to other people. And, and frankly, it helps me. Um, the more people that see this show, the more people find out about my blog, the more of a community I build there, um, that's helpful to me as well. There's nothing worse than, than, than putting stuff out and it not being seen by people who could benefit from it as well. So that really, really helps me um, if you can share it with other people. And also if you're not following me on Instagram and if you're not following me on Twitter, um, get on there as well. Um, particularly Instagram, there's loads of good people on Instagram now. Um, I try and share lots of interesting photographs about what I'm doing. It's almost like a micro blog. Um, get on Instagram. You can lurk for now if you want. You don't have to comment. Just get yourself an Instagram account. Um, find me. Um, you can find me via my blog um, or you can find me by searching on my name on Instagram. Find me, follow me and have a look at the stuff that I'm putting out there as well. So thanks a lot for your attention. Um, thanks for the questions again. Keep them coming in. Twitter, Instagram and SpeakPipe and email if you want. Use the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. Don't leave them buried in comments. On, I'm not going to find them. Uh, make a post of your own, Instagram or Twitter, um, or send me an email or leave a speak pipe um, via my website. Thanks a lot and look forward to the next questions. Hello Paul. Yes, it's Adrian again.